trials can be not only confusing, but also disorienting. Like, like if you, if you hit your head and you're kind of confused and dazed and don't know where to go, like I did when I was 16 snowboarding with a helmet for the first time and, and fell off the bunny slope, fell on the bunny slope and hit my head and was like, thank God that this woman talked me into getting a helmet. What would have happened if I didn't get a helmet? I didn't want to look uncool, but I had to get a helmet and thank God I did. But I was just disoriented, kind of dazed and confused. That's how trials can be. Kind of leave you like, what is going on? Where's my next step? Where am I supposed to be heading? What, what just happened to me? What I found extremely helpful, though, in the midst of the disorienting time of trials is to be able to see, think, consider your ultimate trajectory. That maybe you don't know exactly the next step to take, but you know where you are headed. That, that I'm heading, even though this is... This is Muddy, I'm heading to know and enjoy God forever. And that's what James does this morning. He encourages us to look to our promised future in the midst of our trials. So there are three pieces of practical wisdom and help from James this morning that I want all of us to see. And so I'll just start off with number one. Number one, endure trials God will crown you. This is James 1.12. So look at it with me. James 1.12. James 1.12. If you need a Bible, there's one under your seat. If you don't have a Bible, take that Bible. We'd love for you to have it. Um, James is near the end of the Bible. You see a larger book called Hebrews, and right after that will be James. If you went to Revelation, too far. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one. This is a beatitude. So again, James is uh, picking up from his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, and, and what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount preaches, starts off his sermon with these Beatitudes, with these blessed are. And so I'll just give you a few. Matthew 5, verse 3 says, Blessed, Jesus is preaching this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. And now James add, adds, blessed is the one who endures trials. Now, that, that word can be confusing. Uh, we, we get it kind of off oftentimes. Blessed in a general sense means happy. In a particular sense, it means fulfilled. And so he's saying happy and fulfilled is the person who endures trials. Worldly wisdom says, avoid trials and run away from them and live the easy life, and that's where you'll find happiness and fulfillment. But godly wisdom, this wisdom from God that James is giving us this morning says, no, 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 happiness and fulfillment come from enduring trials. And that may be a tough pill to swallow, but he gives us the why. Why is that? Because when you stand the test, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life will be 
placed on your head. Now, the original readers would have heard this kind of similar to our context of Olympics. Like this imagery is someone running their race and being crowned with a wreath because they were victorious. And so you've got this little wreath on your head like you won the race. So the imagery that, that James paints, and he paints so much imagery in this book, but the imagery here is of one running through the trials of life victoriously, enduring to the end, not, not getting pulled off the course, not giving up, not quitting. Like, the, like those, those, uh, those powerful images of Olympics pass where someone pulls their hammy on the last stretch and they keep going to the end. Dad comes beside the, the son and helps him hobble through the finish line. Like, I'm going to endure through this. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to derail. I'm going to endure through this. Now, with this image of the crown, you, you shouldn't uh, think of, of pirates or anything else. This isn't like gold-studded rubies and gems. This is actually just a symbol. And what's the symbol? The reward of glorious, eternal life with God. That's what he's promised you. That's what he's promised you. And, and, and I know that that's hard for our, some of us because we grew up singing songs like, I've got a mansion over a hilltop because we jacked up the word from the King James Version and thought, yeah, that's what I'm getting. I, I grew up in a trailer house, and so I want to be with Jesus because he's going to give me a mansion. I want to be with Jesus because he's going to give me a gold crown. And, and that completely misses the point, the greatest gift of heaven is not a house, jewelry, streets with gold that don't have massive cracks like our parking lot. The greatest gift of heaven is God himself. So those who love him will love him forever and know him forever. And so they're promised the crown of life, the wreath of eternal life will be placed on your head. You can endure trials if that's your future. Endure trials because of what awaits you. And this is not James. This is, this is scripture. James is scripture. Other scripture says the exact same thing. 2 Corinthians 4.16. This is how Paul gets at it. Therefore, we do not give up. <laughs> it's the exact same thing, right? Endure trials. So, so it feels like James is like, come on, you can do this. Keep going. And Paul is saying, no, we're not going to give up. We're not going to do it. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Does that sound familiar? Verse 2 through 4, endurance produces maturity and completeness. Verse 17, for our momentary light affliction, parenthetical definition, trials, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory, crown of life. So, we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. But we don't give up. We endure because we focus on what's unseen, eternal life. So up to this point, James has said, 
not only will we experience trials as Christians, remember that? It wasn't an if you experience trials, it's whenever you face various trials, you will face trials. But he, but he helped us shape our thinking. What are we supposed to do when that happens? Consider it a joy. And then here he says, we're blessed to endure. We're blessed as we endure. We're blessed if we endure. But not only does he give us this, this understanding of thinking and how we're supposed to even come at our trials or, or, or consider them when they're in the midst of them, he gives us motivation to endure them. In verse 3, he stated, endurance produces maturity. And here he says, endurance leads to the crown of life. And this is why this is wisdom for everyday life. James not only teaches how to think about trials, but teaches what to do with them and how to endure them. So how? How in like a confusing, disorienting, problematic life with conflict and grief and financial trials, how do we actually endure? How do we not give up? How do we not bail? Well, I've already said it, but I want to be very clear because James is just practical and pithy, and so I'll restate it. How do we endure trials? We endure trials by knowing they lead to our maturity. And we endure trials knowing they lead to the crown of life. But that's not it. There's one more, and it's kind of sneaky. It's that last phrase that maybe you wouldn't make that connection to. The crown of life is what promised to those who love him, who love him. So you also, how do you endure trials? You also endure trials by loving God. Loving God. Your love for God fuels your endurance in trials. Your affection and commitment to him empowers endurance in the face of heartache and conflict and grief and persecution and ongoing wounds and troubles that, that squeeze the life out of us. Now, this is why we spend so much time on Sundays trying to stir your affections for God, to try to to stir up the fire, to stoke the fire for you to delight more and more in the Trinity. This is why we want so badly to equip you in the spiritual discipline so your love will grow brighter and hotter for God. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13, 7 makes it very clear. It's the last, last phrase in verse 7. Love what? It bears all things, all things, all things, things. I don't know if you, you know this. Maybe you go over or you maybe heard it 50,000 times at a wedding ceremony. It doesn't really fit that context. But the last little phrase says, love endures all things. Love does. How can you endure trials? Your love for God, that's how. I'm going to endure this because I'm more committed to him than anything else. My allegiance lies with him more than anything else. I am loyal to him and he has my heart and my affection. So maybe I can ask you to spend less time loathing your trials and more time loving your God. Instead of hating all these difficulties and pressures and, and troubles and always being complaining about them, how about you take all that pent-up angst and, and, and energy 
and shoot it at pouring out love for God. Your love for God fuels your endurance and trials. But then I can also say from the flip side, trials will test your love. They will expose what's in your heart. They will test your loyalty to God. Because in trials, it's disorienting, but you have many choices to make. What am I going to do with this? Where are we going to go with this? How am I going to handle this? I'm going to have this conversation with this person. And you need wisdom to choose wisely. So you have to ask, what will I choose? What will I choose in this? Will you long for the easy life or desire maturity? That's a choice. I'm telling you, James is amazingly practical in your everyday business. If you don't want someone to get in your business, don't read the book of James. Don't do it. But we're here and we're in it. And he's in your business on a Tuesday when you're struggling with something. Will you opt for, long for the easy life for convenience, or will you long for maturity? I want to be more like Jesus, or I want a real easy life. Will you look for escapes, or will you fix your eyes on the crown of life before you? Will you love the false God of comfort, or will you love the Trinity? These are the everyday choices you have in the midst of trials. What am I actually going to long for? What am I going to fix my eyes on? What am I going to love? So they are disorienting, trials are. But James is calling us to fix our eyes on the God you love and the end that you're heading towards to know him and enjoy him forever. That will give you bearings. Like the North Star for a pirate ship, I guess. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Gives you the bearings of like, where am I heading? I don't know exactly what to do right now, but I see where I'm going. And that, that can clear up some of the muddiness and give me hope in the midst of this. This trial is not bigger than my future. This trial is not bigger than my God. This trial doesn't define me. This trial is actually an instrument of God to mature me. And that's how I'll see it. So endure trials. God will crown you. Also, endure trials. God is not tempting you to sin. Look at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Yes, James said in verse 12, that trials are a test, but there is a stark difference between test and temptation. They are tests, yes, but they aren't a temptation for God. Trials aren't God tempting you. Now, trials often include temptation. They do. 
We're tempted in the midst of it to do the things I just said earlier, to, to long for an easy life, to give up, to fix our eyes on our trials, to love the false god of comfort. But God is not the author of your temptation. He's so pure and holy. He is not tempted by evil and doesn't tempt anyone. There is no desire in God for you to sin. There is no desire in God for you to sin, to lead to death, to your destruction. That's not in him. He's not longing for your destruction. Now, James, again, gets practical, but also confrontational. I, I don't know exactly how confrontational this was to his original readers. It's quite controversial to us, right? Do you know where I'm going? This is not popular. It's not popular to say, hey, you sin, and it's your fault. It's probably, I guess, more popular to say, uh, that probably wasn't a good idea, but it was that other person's fault or your upbringing or your circumstances. Don't worry about it. Most of us are told to blame our upbringing, our circumstances, other people, or how God made us. Well, this is just how God made me. That's just how God made you. That is human-centered wisdom, and you should feel the oxymoron of that phrase. Did you hear what I said? Human-centered wisdom. It should be, uh, is this live? Is this on, this go online? Uh, let's think. Let me think of what I'm going to say. It is man-centered dung. It's folly. It's foolishness. There's no human-centered wisdom. Yeah, yeah, you sin, but blame it on everything else. No, no, God-centered wisdom teaches we can't blame God or others. We are enticed by our own evil desires, and those desires give birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. That drawn away, enticed, is the imagery of baiting a hook, like putting a worm on a fishing hook to hide the hook so the fish sees, that's an attractive worm, I want to get that. I'm enticed by that. I'm going to eat that. And then what happens? I pull him up. And then I fillet him and I eat him. Like he's dead now. And he's in my stomach because he's enticed by the worm. This is the same thing for us. It leads to our death. You're, you're so uh, uh, attracted by your evil desires and what, what looks really good. But what's in there, what's hidden in there is sin. And sin gives birth to death. This is how we sin not pointing fingers at other people, but owning our own evil desires is what we need to do this morning. Because this is how our first parents sin. Adam and Eve, enticed by their evil desire to do what they want, to doubt what God has said, to be their own gods, they reach out, take the fruit, eat it, and that sin, what gives birth to death. Before they ever gave birth to Cain and Abel, they, their sin gave birth to death brought death into this world. Now, my, my favorite biblical counselor, David Pallison, uh, said this one time in a seminary class I took, and it was super helpful. 
And he says, all right, if I have, this would have been a great object lesson. If I had a cup of water in my hand, imagine it. We can't provide that. If I had a cup of water in my hand and Danielle came up and bumped my elbow and water spilled on the ground, why is there water on the ground? Most of us would answer because Danielle bumped my elbow. It's her fault. But that's not, that's not perfectly true. Water is on the ground because there was water in the cup. If there wasn't water in the cup, there wouldn't be water on the ground. It's the same thing with our sin. That bump may be the occasion for water being on the ground, but, but your circumstances, other people, God may be the occasion for your sin, but they did not cause your sin. Do you see this? If something happens in your life and you respond sinfully, it's there, not because of them or your trials, but because it was in you. In you. It came out because it was in there. So James says, no, no, you can't keep blaming God or anyone else in the midst of your trials or any time for your temptation, for your evil desires, for your sin. You have to own that. We must own our evil desires and put them to death. Growth maturity in Christ will not come from you pointing at everyone else and saying it's their fault for your sin. It won't happen. You'll keep repeating the same cycle over and over again because you never take ownership for your evil desires and actively put them to death. I mean, think about the trials in your life. Let's get real practical. Like, where are you tempted in your trials? Where do your evil desires entice you, draw you away? When maybe you're struggling with an issue with your kid, we're often tempted to isolate from other people and not let anyone into that situation. We run away from fellowship and community because we don't want anyone to know what's really going on. How will they see us? How will they affect how we, they view us? When we're facing financial trials, we're often tempted to lie and cheat to get out of the hole. When we're facing conflict, we're often tempted to run away and discard people. Where conflict never breeds maturity, it just breeds relationship after relationship after relationship being broken and discarded in the wake of your life. When you're facing grief, we're often tempted to overeat and overdrink to self-medicate. Are you with me? Like this, do you see how practical James is? Yes, that is a heavy trial. Yes, that is significant suffering. But don't be drawn away, enticed by your evil desires in the midst of it. Endure. I mean, think about when you're facing persecution. Intense or light persecution around the office. We are often tempted to soften our convictions and swerve from Orthodox Christianity. Like, wow, well, yeah, some people say that, but I, I would maybe say this. And we get real soft on what is very clear in God's word. 
What about our marriages? When we're facing difficulty in our marriages, we are often tempted to find intimacy on a screen or in another person. And James is saying, you can't blame other people for these things. You can't blame your trials and you can't blame God. You need the wisdom to see your temptation, your evil desires, your sin, and put it to death. And rather than running to sin in the midst of your trials to make yourself feel better about yourself or to cope with the trial, actually consider it a joy because God is working in you through this trial to produce, to grow you, to make you more and more like Jesus. So endure trials, knowing it leads to maturity, knowing that you're headed towards the crown of life, all driven by your love for God. So kill them. Don't play around with them. Don't, don't keep staring at the worm on the hook. You keep on, yeah, mm, I'm just going to keep looking. I'll just keep looking at it. I'll just keep looking. I'll keep checking it out. I, I won't act on it. I won't go any closer. And you're like, wait, it's right there. Should I, I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Don't play around with it. This, this is why Peter is so vehemently imperative when he says, flee sin. Run. Don't keep checking it out. Don't mess around with it. Put it to death. Starve your evil desires and cultivate godly desires. And that's your direction. That's, that's godly wisdom because godly wisdom is choosing the best goals and the best way to get to those goals. So James is giving us the right goals and saying this is how you get there. But he's not done because at this point you may feel like a little heavy. It's like, man, that's, I'm beaten down by my trials and I also feel a lot of shame for how I've responded to my trials. Like I, I feel a lot of shame that this is the trial in my life because I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about my anxiety. I don't want to talk about my depression. I don't want to talk about my financial struggles. I don't want to talk about my marriage difficulties. I don't want to talk about all this stuff. And then I also feel a ton of shame for how I've responded to these trials. Like I just have a, a, a cycle of sinning in response to my trials over and over again. I don't know how to break this cycle. And so this may feel heavy for you. James is trying to give you wisdom, but it may feel real heavy of like, okay, what do I do with this? Well, the good news is James doesn't stop here. He roots all of this in the gospel. Look at it in verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he, the Father, gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, first thing I want you to see there is that James is not an aloof or cold sage. He's not some monotone old guy that's like, eh, you should do this, this is it, this is how you should go. Do you feel his warmth? Because over and over in this letter, he calls the readers, dear brothers and sisters, 
He's a warm, older brother who is coaching us in wisdom. He, he, he knows your pain. He, he was in Jerusalem in all the persecution that happened and stayed and endured that trial to be the pillar of the Jerusalem church. Like he knows the pain. He knows the trials. He knows the suffering. He feels it with you. He's been tempted with you. He's also sinned like you, James has. And so he's not standing for a far distance, lobbing out some nuggets of wisdom for people that he doesn't really understand or get. He's saying, no, no, I want you so badly to walk this path of wisdom in your life. Don't be deceived, your brothers and sisters. I love you. I'm for you. Don't believe the lie in the midst of your trials that God is tempting you. No, no, no. Your father, our father, is good. And he gives good gifts. And in this context, we can say clearly one of his gifts are trials. He gives them to grow us, to sanctify us. As I said last week, we can't use our trials to accuse God of being unloving and weak. Because God is using those trials to mature us. They're a good gift from him. He's a generous father, not a harsh taskmaster. So if you can feel that James is for you, you must understand that the father is unchangeably for you. Unchangeably for you. You hear that? He doesn't shift. He doesn't change like shadows. No. And so, so if his heart is for you, his heart is forever for you. And so you feel a little warmth from James, you should feel the radiating heat of the Father. By his own choice, he births you. That's how James makes it very clear that he's for you. He juxtaposes temptations versus the Father. So he just said, our evil desire gives birth to sin, which leads to death. And what he's saying here is that the Father births saints to life. So third point, the Father gives salvation, not temptation. Back to verse 18, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are born again, made new by his own choice. Just like you didn't have any say in your natural birth, that was your parents' choice. You have no say in your spiritual birth. That's the father's choice. I'm going to set my love on them. I am going to take these people that are dead in their sins and their trespasses, and I'm going to make them alive. I'm going to love them into being. That they have dead hearts, and I'm going to love them and give them new hearts and make them a new creation. And he made you a new creation by the word of truth. Now, you might think that he's talking about the Bible. But throughout the New Testament, when you see that phrase, word of truth, what it is most often speaking of is the gospel message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. How did he make you alive through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Son. This is how he's made you alive. How much does he love you? He sent his Son and gave up his Son 
for you to reconcile you to himself because there is no other way for that to happen. And then Hebrews 2 picks up the multifaceted diamond of the gospel and looks at the gospel from the angle of temptation. And it says this in Hebrews 2.14. You'll see it on the screen. Now, since the children, us, have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these flesh and blood so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters, us, in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since, breathe this in, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. The Father gives birth to people through the message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. The Father sent the Son to share with us flesh and blood, to live on this earth, to live like us, to be tempted like us, but without sin. That's what Hebrews 4 states. Yeah, he was tempted like all of us, but there's salvation in his name because he withheld from all that temptation. You need someone's perfect life credited to your account for you to be reconciled to the Father and you're not ever gonna get there. You haven't gotten there. You have an imperfect life, a sinful life. So there's actually no recovery for you to try to turn it around and weigh out your good more than the bad. You need a perfect life and that's Jesus, the God-man who was tempted just like you yet without sin, and so he can help us who are tempted. In him was no evil desire that gave birth to sin, that gave birth to death. His heart was full of love for the Father. I only do what the Father tells me. And while he did not sin, he died for our sin. The one who was tempted like us but never sinned died in our place because we were tempted and we sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned. And then it gloriously rose from the grave to defeat our sin and death and the devil. And he reigns right now, Hebrews 2 tells us, as our merciful and faithful high priest to help us in our trials and our temptations. So Christian, if you go back to that first verse, verse 12, this is why you love God. You love God because he first loved you. So that takes a lot of weight of you trying to, to manufacture love in yourself to say like, oh, will you please give me the promised crown of life because I love you. I think I really love you. I want to try to love you more. I'm trying to get it there. No, no. 
in his love for you first, he gave you a heart that loves him. You love him because he first loved you and gave his son to make you new and to reconcile you to himself and gave you his spirit to empower you to love and endure. So the logic is this. The crown of life is promised to those who love God and those who love God love him because he first loved them. His warm affection and total commitment in his covenant to you is what fuels your love for him. And your love for him is what fuels your endurance in the midst of trials. So this is all rooted in the good news of Jesus. If you want to endure trials, you must anchor yourself to the good news of Jesus. You have to come back to it. You have to stake your life on it. You have to preach it to yourself. You need to be rooted that this is the love of God for me. How can I stand on that? How can I know that? How can I bank that? Well, the imagery of 1 John 4 is that Christ died on the cross. That's perfect love for you. So let the gospel drive you to love him and to endure your trials. But if you're not a Christian, it's a lot of bad news here. Meaning, you don't have the promise of the crown of life. You don't have the promise of maturity in this life. You have the remaining fear of death in you. You have sins to pay for. And no one strong enough to truly help you when you're tempted. So what you need is to turn and believe and put your faith in Jesus in his life and death and resurrection the Father gives salvation, not temptation. He is ready and willing to forgive you and make you new. Like, we, we, the Christians in this room didn't work for this. We're not smarter than you. Anyone can get in on this. We are sinners and sufferers alike. And the Father is standing ready and willing because he's generous and gracious and loves to give good gifts. And what he wants to give you this morning is the gift of salvation. So he's wooing you, pulling you, saying, hey, hey, hey if you really want wisdom, if, if you really want a new life, if you really want something to change, give your life to me. I will take your sin and I will give you my son's righteousness. And I'll see you and all the beauty and the righteousness and the perfection that I see my son. And I will call you my dear son or daughter. That's what he is wooing you to this morning, calling you to. And without 
without that, this conversation about wisdom leads to nothing for you. Because you're trapped in what I said earlier, that man-centered wisdom. And that's going nowhere. So will you, will you continue to delay, think about, weigh your options? Or will you put your faith in Christ this morning? And if you're a Christian, God is calling you to put your evil desires to death. Yes, you'll face trials. Yes, some of you are in the midst of them right now. Will you choose wisely? Or will you choose the easy life, the false God of comfort? Will you fix your eyes on the immensity of your suffering or on the future glory that awaits you? Let's pray. Father, I ask for us to move on this, to respond to this. As we'll see shortly, you tell us not to be hearers only, but doers of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that this would not end like a lecture or some TED talk or an information meeting. I pray that you would work in us and stir us to respond to you. To move towards you in love because you move towards us in love first. To repent, to turn from our evil desires. Now, to turn to you. To ask for help to endure our trials. Lord, we need you. Spirit, I, I want you to have your way with us, that you would penetrate our hearts. That you would chip off those rough edges. You would renew our thinking. That you would mature us. Spirit, pull up our eyes from our trials, even our sin, and that we might see beauty of God. In Christ's name I pray.